Hello, everyone, and welcome to the feedback episode of Three Right Turns. Now, it's been a minute since we've opened up the old mailbag, and lo and behold, I have a lot of thoughts from a lot of people on a lot of different topics. I thought this would be an easier episode to do, but y'all wanted me to read reports and studies and all the different topics I've been doing, and let me tell you, that's a lot of work. I thought I'd have this thing to gym days in advance, but but once again, I'm right up against my editorial deadline. Plus, I don't really have anything particularly pithy or insightful to say on my mind right now after all the number crunching I've been doing. So let's just get on to the feedback. You can send in your comments and criticism, as always, at three right turns at swizzbold.com, and they are much appreciated. You can also discuss each episode and any other topic that you want on our subreddit at reddit.com slash r slash swizzbold. First up on many podcasts now, I've advocated having difficult political conversations with your friends and family. Carter dropped a note asking for some advice on how to actually do that. Carter says, you mentioned in an early episode that you had made some headway on confronting your dad about some of his political ideas. My question is, how do I go about debating my Republican father and try to get him to acknowledge the shortcomings of the modern Republican Party when it comes to economic and racial policies? I certainly don't think of him as a racist, but it's difficult for me to think of his political ideas as anything but indifferent to racist practices. I'm able to have some civilized discussions with him on these topics, but I feel I've made zero progress on getting him to actually reevaluate his beliefs. He voted for Obama in 2008, then Trump in 2016, and I feel an increase in taxes and welfare programs are the cause. About a loss on how to get him to reconsider his beliefs, as I'm fairly sure his main concern is how much taxes he and our family, Southern middle uh, class whites, have to pay. While he says he supports legitimate protests in these past months, he seems far more concerned with the rioting and violence committed by black people. I also have little love for the Democratic Party. I supported Bernie and will now half-heartedly support Biden. And I find it difficult and wrong to tell him that they are fully just and noble an alternative. I hope you'll be able to give me and I'm sure many other young Southerners some ideas on how to be civil while still engaging with my dad to truly consider the conservative ideas that he has had for his entire life. Well, I'll try to help Carter. This is one of the biggest themes I had consistently in the feedback. How do I talk with someone I care about on topics that are important to me when we're just very far apart in terms of ideology, morality, and increasingly factuality? And I have some thoughts. Uh, Number one is you kind of have to lose your attachment to a specific outcome. You know, a lot of people who ask this question are hoping that there's going to be a formula or some specific talking points or sequences of words that will allow them to convince a person that the way they see things is the right way. But as we discussed just in the previous episode, that's not how people think. It's not how people actually change their mind, especially when it comes to deeply held personal views such as politics, views that you say he's held for his entire life. So you got to you got to forget about this idea that if you just do the right thing, uh, if you say the right thing at the right time with the proper attitude, that it's going to be like some kind of magic spell, a light bulb's going to go off and your dad's problematic views on politics and race are just going to go poof, go away. But still, you know, talking with your dad or, you know, friends or any, any family about ethics, morality, politics, I think is a good thing in and of itself. Talking with your dad is going to expose you to ideas and attitudes 
that obviously make you feel uncomfortable. But you know what? He's going to have that same experience. People get very comfortable in their bubbles, especially nowadays with social media and the way we self-segregate in terms of where we live and where we work. And engaging in kind of reasonable conflict with people that disagree with us is a very good antidote for that. And I see this all the time, you know, conservatives talking about the silent majority of supposed quote unquote good people that just aren't speaking up about some imagined, uh, perhaps real moral crisis or progressives thinking that all of America is going to be on board with specific policies or candidates. Right. You know, we've talked about that. And sometimes they'll even grant that. Okay. Maybe not everyone sees it my way, but the ones that don't are Twitter crazies or Bernie bros or campus kids. But you know what? What if the Twitter crazy is their own son or daughter? That's a lot harder to dismiss or a best friend or a cousin or whatever. But still, it might be months or years or never if you're waiting for your parents to come around to your way of thinking. If they go to the graves with their political heads up their political asses, that's not your fault. It's probably not even theirs. So why get attached to this idea that if you just do and say the right thing, everything's going to work out? So so lose your attachment outcome and realize that, especially when you're dealing with your parents, there's a power and experience imbalance that's going into the conversation. Your dad, like a boss or a policeman or a judge, probably expects to be deferred to and shown respect just on account of his position in society as uh, you know the head of the house. And that's just the expectation of fatherhood in our society, because in practice, he's probably had 20 plus years of dealing with your dumbass as a kid and as much wisdom and experience as you're going to accumulate in your lifetime. He's always going to have that 20 to 30 year head start on you rhetorically, you know, being deferential, keeping a light touch, having lots of smaller, less intense conversations is going to be more helpful to your dad and probably your own sanity than having, you know, a huge blowout fight that rages for hours once or twice a year uh, that just keeps escalating that you can't get yourself out of. And, you know, keep in mind, this is all generalization of parents. You know, every parent's different. Every relationship between parent and child is different. I've seen parents who seem very amazing and kind and loving get run down by entitled bratty kids. And I've seen terrible parents tear down what I think are pretty amazing kids all the while maintaining that what they do is perfect um, and demand, you know, respect and loyalty and all that stuff. So if you have a really shitty parent, you know, my heart goes out to you. I can I can sympathize. You know, my mother has disowned me for over 10 years because of religious disagreement. But this advice is is not aimed towards those types of parents. It's aimed towards people that have decent people for parents. And this might come as a shock, but I think decent people can support systemic racism. A decent person can be patronizing to women. A decent person can believe the Second Amendment is more important than health care. A decent person can believe that abortion is morally wrong. Now, if this raises eyebrows among some of you, I'm not saying that they're right or their viewpoints are valid or that these viewpoints aren't harmful to society. But this is another way the kind of understanding the Overton window can help you in life. If a person's viewpoints aren't too far outside of the mainstream, they can hold them and still be decent people because they're not going to be confronted with that contradiction and be forced to grapple with it. And that's where you start drawing the line between decent people and indecent people, right? So when you're dealing with your parents, this is an important thing to keep in mind because you have to consider the Overton window, not just now, but when they were growing up, because that's probably where they formed a lot of their most 
you know, difficult, troubling views in society. And they've probably been unchallenged for decades, right? And that sucks, but it's a reality. And I, for one, like to deal in reality as much as, as possible. Now, the maddening inverse of this situation is that I think that a lot of us in Generation X or Millennials or Zoomers, we are going to experience, if we haven't already, uh kind of this unique experience of realizing that we are outgrowing our parents in terms of emotional intelligence. But on the other hand, you know, their generation and preceding ones are the shoulders in which we have to stand on for this understanding. You know, our parents grew up with society grappling with this radical idea that, hey, maybe we shouldn't hit our children. Our parents were among the first generation to start seeking therapy for personal and relationship problems. Our parents began normalizing the use of drug therapies and mental health. And yeah, mental health still highly stigmatized in America, but it's so much better than it was 50 or even 30 years ago. And our parents are a big part of that. Maybe not your dad in particular, but even if your dad didn't exactly champion mental health, his generation was one of the last to really bear the brunt of of that heavy stigma and trauma. So I guess I'm saying try to have perspective when you go into these conversations. I'm not saying that you should pity your dad. I'm not saying you should go in cringing like some kind of whipped dog. But you have to try to be reasonable and respectful and aware that you might get emotional outburst and anger and frustration for all of these different reasons. Also, you know, the reason I advocate for arguing with your friends and families, because unlike anonymous people on Twitter, Facebook and Reddit, they actually care about you and what you think of them. Right. You have social capital with them. But that social capital is dependent on the strength of your relationship. So I think you should take a stock in yours. Do you and your dad get along in most matters, maybe except for politics? Or has this dysfunction creeped into other areas of your life? Can you enjoy just an afternoon with the old man? Fishing, working on a car, watching a baseball game, cooking, uh, whatever it is that you guys do for fun. If politics is constantly interfering with your relationship, Maybe it's actually a good idea to just consciously shut that kind of talk down for a while and shore up the relationship. Not forever, because again, we need to have these conversations. But even a month or two of some good times and reconnection would be a good thing before you try to have these more difficult conversations with them. It doesn't mean you do like one nice gesture and as soon as you guys are laughing and enjoying yourselves and relaxing, you hit him with his problematic views on race, right? Because that's that's what a manipulator does. Because we are going to lose our attachment to outcome and we are investing in this relationship, not because we want to change our parents' minds on on politics, not because it's going to help us win an argument, because it probably won't. We're investing in this relationship because we want to have a good relationship with our parents, right? Now, the other thing is you don't have to react to what your parents or your loved ones say right away, right off the bat. You don't have to have that pithy answer. A lot of times your parents get worked up about something that they've seen shared on Facebook or something they've read in a newspaper or seen on TV or heard on the radio, and they're they're actively outraged by it, right? They have consumed the fact that has been presented with a point of view, and they probably consumed it pretty uncritically. I see this happen on the left all the time where, you know... People will tweet something wrong or say something wrong, and a person 
even on their team, quote unquote, tries to correct them and they get blasted because, you know, they're not trying to hear that right now or it's taking away from the narrative they're trying to say. It's it's it's, an, it's a natural defensive reaction people have. The, the problem when you wade into these situations is they're going to have the advantage because they're familiar with the case uh, or at least they're going to think they are. It's fresh in their mind. They've been thinking about it a lot. Uh, like I said, they're worked up about it. And if you're not up on what they're mad about, and a lot of times, even if you are, the best thing to do is just kind of sit and listen and absorb, you know, agree where you can, you know, keep them talking. If you're familiar with the issue, then by all means, push back where you disagree with their facts or their framing. But if you're not, listen, look into the matter later and maybe come back a week or two down the line. You know, Dad, I was really thinking about what we talked about the other night. and I looked into that news story that you brought up to my attention, and, and I have a few questions. And then you can either talk about specific points that you found and didn't agree with uh, when you researched them, or you can try asking open-ended questions like, well, why do you think someone would burn down a business in their own community? And see what they say. I mean, they might have answers from all the, you know, running the gamut from, I don't know, I've never been able to figure that out. Or they might say, I've heard it's because people from out of town get bust in to cause trouble. Or they might say, well, blacks just don't have the same values of community and property like we do, right? And all those are very different conversations. Some are worth having, some are kind of yikes. But you also, you, you mentioned, you know, you don't, you don't want to think of your dad as a racist and your dad probably is not like, you know, a Ku Klux Klan super style racist, right? But you need to understand the concept of moral license. Moral license is a type of uh, cognitive bias, um, a, a, a type of wrong think where things that you do that are perceived as good or virtuous allows you to indulge in thoughts and behaviors that you know are bad. For example, if you're on a diet, you might rationalize eating an entire cake in an evening because you've been so good all week, right? You're going to eat 5,000. You, you've, you've, you've shaved off 300 calories for like the better part of five days, and now you're going to eat 3,000 because you've been so good. You need a reward. Or people that volunteer for a soup kitchen might be unkind or even cruel to homeless people they meet on the streets. And yes, people that voted for Obama in 2008 or 2012 can be more likely to think that we're living in a post-racial society and discredit the notion that their actions and political activity might harm black people. How can I possibly support a racist regime? I voted for a black man. Now, I'm including in the show notes some specific research conducted after the 2008 election that shows how this works if you want to read more about it. And if you want it in a more entertaining format, Malcolm Gladwell actually uh, did a really good job exploring this topic in one of his revisionist history episodes, The Lady Vanishes, where he looks into a similar phenomenon where Australia elected its first woman prime minister, which actually led to resurgence of sexist attitudes in society and politics. And all those links, again, will be in the show notes. Now... This doesn't help you really talk with your dad. None of this stuff has so far, because I think informing a person of their bias rarely helps to see the error of their way. Like, you know, dad, have you ever heard of the term moral license? It's it's not going to work, but it can help you understand the way he is. And again, as much as you can let go of the idea of your dad being racist, even though he is certainly supporting systemic racism, I think the better off you're going to be in terms of your mental health towards your dad and how you approach him. But mostly... You really got to know your stuff. Uh, I think you have to know an issue two or three times better than someone else to be in a position to explain it in a way that has a hope of appearing compelling. You know, uh, understanding something to kind of 
uh, get it yourself is a lot lower barrier than being able to teach someone else that same thing because you have to be able to tell it um, in a style that they're more capable of absorbing. Um, it fits in their education style that uh, is, is going to be able to be flexible enough to fit into their worldview and kind of, you know, get around any easy dodges or cognitive biases they have. And it, it's tough. But it's also really important because if they catch you in an inconsistency or fudging numbers, you know, the window for changing their mind might might close. But also, you know, instead of like facts and figures, um, it's also really powerful to try using narratives on people. Um, you know, one thing I find very compelling or I found that people think is compelling is if you look at like post-Civil War history, you know, black people in particular have faced challenges to their humanity about once a generation. Uh, and, they're, and they're not like discrete little events that happen. For like It's not like a recession that lasts for a year or two. These things kind of like overlap as well. So like after Reconstruction failed, the South was swept with violence, which forced many black people to migrate to northern cities. And they lost land and wealth along the way. Then you have the practice of redlining, where institutions uh, refused to loan money or even insure properties in black neighborhoods. And since housing is traditionally how middle-class families build wealth, you have this opportunity denied to black families, yet another generation loses property, loses wealth. Then along comes Jim Crow and segregation. Then you have the war on drugs. Again, black families are bearing the brunt of this war. They lose more property. They lose more wealth. Their families are torn apart. And these things, again, uh, they're not discrete events. They overlap. They magnify each other. They add generational trauma each generation at a time. You know, and, and some of these practices like redlining wasn't officially done away with until like the early to mid 70s. And it still leaves its mark like uh, there's this one video I, I saw, I think it was from ContraPoints called Is America Still Racist, where she laid historical redlining maps over current city maps that highlighted things like crime, uh, lack of asbestos, uh, asbestos and lead paint. Uh, or pipe problems and lack of abatement of those issues on housing values. And they still match up pretty much one-to-one. These redlining maps from the 30s, which, you know, has to start begging the question, is redlining actually dead if the effects can be felt 50 years after it's been outlawed? So things like that. It's not so much facts and figures. It's just like a narrative that people can follow you know, to, to counter the like, well, we fought the Civil War. The fuck? It's been 150 years. We fought the Civil War, the Civil Rights. That's been 70 years ago. Helping them to realize it, it's not that simple and, it, and that stuff doesn't just stop um, is, is really good for that. But even then, if you can cite chapter and verse, uh, stat after stat, study after study, proving that there's racial discrimination in terms of criminal justice and economic and housing uh, terms, in terms of wealth, in terms of business opportunities, there's just not much disagreement on this kind of stuff in academic, uh, historic, sociology circles, but people deny it, right? I've watched so many debates between progressives and, and conservatives on this, and it always tends to kind of get down to one of two points. They play this shell game where if you try to demonstrate that black and white people have different outcomes in something like the criminal justice system, they'll ask, well, have you accounted for disparities in income, education, where they live? Oh, no. Well, <laughs> Obviously, a rich person is going to have from a better neighborhood is going to have a better odds in court than a poor person. I don't think we need to go to racism to explain this disparity. And now you're in a position where you have to explain, well, 
you know, actually differences in education and wealth have a racial component, too. And then they can say, well, have you accounted for the crime statistics that show black people commit more violent crime? And if you have that accounted for, they'll just keep demanding how many confounding things have you accounted for? Have you accounted for the prior records? Have you accounted for if they're sagging their pants? How prone are they to shouting, fuck the police at a judge? How much gangster rap was on their Spotify account at the time that they were arrested? It just it just never ends. You just keep switching back between these different perspectives. And when you get to this point, and you might with your dad, I kind of like to turn it around and ask them, well, how do you explain the well-documented disparities between white and black outcomes in this history, white and black violence? There has to be a reason, right? Now, I believe the reason is systemic racism. What's your proposed mechanism? And the point of this, you know, again, because I don't think your dad is racist, is to induce that cognitive dissonance that we talked about in that last week between what they believe and their ideals and what they observe. Again, I don't think your dad is a KKK type of racist. So this line of thought probably will make him uncomfortable. And and don't let him dodge and, and talk about vague things like culture. What's specifically about their culture? Oh, is it fathering children out of the wedlock? Well, why do people do that? Oh, you think they glorify criminal behavior? Why would a person do that? They they refuse to integrate in the white culture? Well, why? There has to be a reason. There has to be a reason. And if you eliminate structural and systemic racism, then all you have left is appeals to like actual racism. And when you get to this point and you might start going down like a dark road with your dad, uh, at these points, I try to draw upon how I was raised. This is something I'm, I'm really good at using against my dad. Uh, my aunt is another one I go around and around with. Um, you know, I was raised to believe that all people were equal, that the strong should protect the weak, that we should be honest and tell the truth, that we should respect women, we should respect elders, that we should work hard and see a reward for our labor. Now, there's plenty of fucked up ways that you can twist these kind of like feel good principles around and turn them into kind of, you know, toxic shit. You could probably guess from a few of those how they could go wrong. But, you know, it's also helpful that I was mostly raised right. I wasn't raised to be like a dishonest crook, criminal, liar, whatever. Um, And because of that, it's really easy for me to draw these really sharp distinctions between the way I was raised and the current behavior of a lot of prominent conservatives. Just a few months ago, I actually got into this specifically with my dad because he was trying to, you know, paint me as naive about some of my views. And I turned it around on him. I said, well, where did I get all these high and lofty ideals? Didn't you teach them to me? Why did you teach me the opposite of how you thought the world worked, the opposite of what I needed to be to be successful? Why would you handicap me like this? And, you know, it it's it's kind of a painful truth because a lot of the older folks have really fallen far from the ideals that they grew up espousing that they were taught. And this goes quadruple for anyone that claims to be some kind of nominal Christian talking this talk. So if you had a similar upbringing to mine, and maybe you did, Maybe you can appeal to your dad's convictions. You know, what do you think about a man who shoots a fleeing person in the back? Haven't those, the, didn't, didn't, weren't those always the villains, dad? What do you think about a man who tortures and inflicts pain on a person that they have restrained and in custody? What about a man who shoves an old person down and gives him a head injury? What about a man who drives a squad car through a crowd of people? You know, our, our founding fathers dressed like Native Americans and dumped a bunch of private property into a sea over tax policy. What would they have done to the Redcoats if they had behaved as the police in disadvantaged communities? But, you know, this all kind of leads back to my first point. Don't expect any one conversation to change anyone's mind. 
the best you can ever do is present information in a way that doesn't provoke their natural defensive reaction. And you present this info from a place of love and respect. And if they change their mind at all, it's not going to happen overnight, nor is it ever going to be likely that they're going to come all the way over to your side. That's asking a lot. But I still think you should always keep trying because you love your dad, you care for him, and you know, as long as that comes out in the conversation, I, th- I think you can't go wrong. Now, if anyone else has any advice, I, I got a couple other things we could talk about in specifics and, and maybe in upcoming shows. But if anyone else has any advice or experiences with dealing with their folks, uh, send that in, 3RT at swizzbull.com. Moving on, I received a lot of feedback on my podcasts on racism, especially the latest round of protests and demonstrations around the deaths of uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, the Walking in the Snow episode. Uh, Here's a selection starting with Neil. Neil says, you mentioned on a recent podcast that you don't know exactly what to do about police and cited an example of how chokeholds, for example, are already outlawed in many jurisdictions, but are still being used. I agree it's an extremely difficult issue. I'm curious if you saw, and if so, your thoughts on this, a study from the University of Chicago Law School. And I for sure will uh, link this study from the University of Chicago Law in, uh, in the show notes. But essentially compares police conduct standards across the United States with the ones proposed by the UN for like ideal policing, respecting human rights. Uh, and he cites this alarming excerpt from the report for him. It says, out of the 20... 20- Police departments, city police departments surveyed in a study, not one met the minimum standards established by these human rights laws. Even the two cities that had the best scoring policies, such as Chicago and Los Angeles, did not guarantee basic safeguards um, in terms of necessity, proportionality, and accountability as regards to the law. Uh, Neil continues, the most upsetting aspect for me is this is based on the police's own policies. He quotes from the study, the authors collected police department uh, 2017 to 2018 use of lethal force policies online on police department websites and at the use force protect project um, and by informal email communications with police departments and through official records, public records requests via the relevant state freedom of information act statutes. Um, So it's based on their own policies and not like flawed enactment. It's not like, well, we're trying to do the right thing and our officers aren't doing it like their official policy falls short of respecting people's basic human rights. Uh, Neil concludes, uh, it seems that they're not even aiming to have standards that uphold human rights, but are falling short um, because it's not even their goal. So I hadn't seen this study, but uh, I did read it. And as a former Hoosier, I was really disappointed to see Indianapolis at the very bottom of all the surveyed cities. Uh, I think they scored like three out of 100 or whatever on on this uh, uh, UN human rights scale. But I think it's a great point to an extent. You know, you're not going to get very far with conservatives and even moderates when you're citing UN opinions on human rights, because these are mostly leftist and progressive talking points, because, you know, we take the United Nations seriously. We want to live in the Star Trek utopia, Um, while on the right, they think at best the UN is a useful tool to outmaneuver our international opponents. And at worst, it's a tool of Satan to bring the entire world under the dominion of corrupt, godless rule. But it does highlight something that I think is true. And that's increasingly our police are not here to protect our individual lives and liberty, but they're here to protect private property and political interest. 
In fact, since 1980s, it's been a consistent legal finding that's been argued and affirmed up to the Supreme Court that police have no legal duty to protect individual lives unless they're actually in police custody. But then again, when it comes to police custody, uh, we've seen how well that worked out for some people of late. Being handcuffed and all still doesn't protect them. You know, police can stand by and watch a person shoot up a school and have in the last few years. They can fail to take action on restraining orders. They can watch a mob of armed assailants beat up peaceful demonstrators. Hell, in many cases, they are the mob of armed assailants beating up peaceful demonstrators, right? As a counterpoint, I have the following email from Kevin M., He says, I recently listened to Walking the Snow, and I think you missed some statistics that are relevant to the discussion. He cites a primary source from the NBER and a write-up in the Wall Street Journal from the researcher that talks about what data has to say about police shootings. He says, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. If you have any, cheers. Okay. So I looked at this paper, and let's examine what we have here, because I want to kind of like back this up and and, and talk about like what's a three-right-of-turns approach to new information and evaluating information in light of our previous episode. You know, how do we determine what's true and what isn't? You know, I champion the idea that we can mostly rely on consensus among experts. And there is very much a consensus among academics and criminologists and sociologists that there is a racial component to almost every aspect of an individual's interaction with the criminal justice system in America. Now, we talked about how black people in particular have a higher chance of being stopped by police. When stopped, they have a higher chance of being arrested. When arrested, they have a higher chance of being convicted. When convicted, face harsher sentences. And this is accounting for a lot of confounding uh, statistics, like you know prior arrests and whether they have contraband, whether they're carrying weapons, et cetera, et cetera. And we've also looked at studies to show that black people also face higher false conviction rates on murder, especially when their victims are white. So, Does a consensus mean universal agreement? No. Uh, Some studies say that this racial component is is much smaller. Some of them say it's much larger than others. There are some outliers that say the problem is much worse than the consensus applies. And there are, of course, a few others that say there's no problem at all. So when someone asks me to look at a study that contradicts the viewpoint I hold, I don't mind doing so. Because there's there's a few things that could be happening here, right? One, they're drawing the wrong conclusions from a study, which happens all the time. We talked about it last week. If you pull an individual stat or data point from a study, and that happens to arrive at the opposite conclusion that the researchers did in light of the entire report, well, you're probably doing science and studying wrong. Uh, two, the study could just be garbage for various reasons. The researchers were unqualified or they might have impressive qualifications, but they're in the wrong field. And you see a lot of this going on in like creation science and flat earth research, right? You've got a high school science teacher that styles themselves as an earth scientist, that kind of thing. Or the research was paid for by a third party that has an agenda. You think about all the studies that disproved the link from smoking tobacco and cancer that came out of the tobacco industry itself or the many studies sponsored by oil companies over the decades, casting doubt on the harm lead and carbon dioxide has on the environment. Uh, Three, the study could just be an outlier. You know, people do good science and analysis, but their results can differ. You have 30 carbon dating labs place a dinosaur living 150 million years ago, but three of them put them at 50 million years sooner And a couple put them 50 million years later, and one says, well, hell, this dinosaur died last week. 
well, did the dinosaur live 150 million years ago or yesterday? Again, smart money is on the consensus. You know, 30 reports said 150 million years ago, probably 150 million years ago. And finally, some glorious times, the consensus changes because we get new research. We get new data, new tools, new ways of looking at things. You know, plate tectonics used to be a fringe theory early in the 20th century. Like, oh, our, our continents are flowing on this plastic mantle and smashing into each other. It sounds preposterous. It's absurd. But 50 years later, became an accepted fact. How does that work? It often starts with an outlier. A single paper publishes something interesting, unexpected. It gains attention. It gains criticism. People try to tear up it apart. It, it contradicts the official, uh, you know, accepted theories. People then try to duplicate the findings. When they do, more interesting patterns emerge. And over years and sometimes decades, more and more experts are convinced by this process about the correctness of the findings. And voila. Suddenly, we understand why South America and Africa look suspiciously like two jigsaw pieces that fit together almost perfectly. Now, when it comes to racism in America, I, for one, hope to see a day, maybe in my lifetime even, that that first outlier study that suggests, hey, the gap between outcomes for people of color and white Americans is starting to close. Maybe it's even vanished. Now, I wouldn't expect that to happen today because I believe, and the critical consensus agrees with me, that America is still racist as fuck. But in a decade, 30 years, 50 years, if we work together on finding and eliminating and resolving instances of structural racism and we fight those with solutions that promote justice and equality, we should see it eventually, right? A single study that gets criticized and picked apart, but the findings hold. A repeat of the study is done, and it finds, with minor disagreements, the study's original conclusions are holding. And more and more data gets accumulated, and experts start to agree, wow, America has made real headway on its problem with racism. And there will be resistance to that idea, because there's a lot of momentum going in this other way, and we see a lot of evidence of it. Um, you know, we've been told so many times before, ah, everything's all good. We've solved racism. And you'd expect that on any kind of consensus change. But, you know, before that bright day dawns on the realization of Dr. King's long held dream, we're probably going to get a lot of wrong conclusions. We're probably going to get a lot of amateur opinions masquerading as fact. We're going to get a lot of paid research serving up conclusions that they got money to find. We're going to find statistical outliers. We're going to see these false kind of dawns. So let me look at the study that Kevin Ford made. It's authored by Roland G. Fryer Jr., who is a rising star in economics. He's the youngest tenured black professor at Harvard. I think he's only 40 years old. He's got a prestigious position at both the National Bureau of Economic Research, where he did author this paper, and the W.E.B. Du Bois Institute. And he's authored numerous economics papers in respected academic journals over the past decade. Uh, this man is not a charlatan or a fool. It does not appear. So Dr. Fryer in 2016 released a paper that concluded that while minorities, and he looked at black and Hispanic Americans specifically, are more likely to experience police use of force, you know, getting hit by batons, getting thrown against a car, getting thrown on the ground, you know, that kind of thing. When you look at police shootings, they are actually no more likely to be shot than whites. Let me read some of this uh, summary of his findings from this Wall Street Journal opinion piece he wrote about the paper recently in, uh, in the wake of the death of George Floyd. 
He says, there are large racial differences in police use of non-lethal force. Analyzing nearly 5 million police encounters from New York City, we found that when police reported the incidents, they were 53% more likely to use physical force on black civilians and white ones. In a separate, nationally representative data set asking civilians about their experiences with police, we found the use of physical force on blacks to be 350% as likely. That's interesting. You got 53% increase when the police themselves report the data and when you ask uh, individuals to self-report it's 350 percent as likely and he says this is true on every level of non-lethal force from officers putting their hands on civilians to striking them with batons even when attempting to control for every variable uh we conclude that blacks are still significantly more likely to endure police force also, compliance by civilians does not eliminate racial differences in police use of force. Black civilians who are recorded as compliant by the police were 21% more likely to suffer police aggression than compliant whites. We found the benefits of compliance differed significantly by race. So this kind of like shoots a hole in the hole like, well, why didn't they just go along? Why did they didn't this? Why did they resist? It doesn't there's there's still a disparity even when. Uh, people of both races are compliant to police discussion. And this is, again, as self-reported by the police. However, uh, he did not find racial differences in officer-involved shootings. His data comes from localities in California, Colorado, Florida, Texas, and Washington State and contained counts of almost 1,400 police shootings at civilians between the years of 2000 and 2015. He says, regardless of how I interpreted the data, I found no racial differences in shootings overall in any city in particular in any subset of data. He concludes with this statement. I have grappled with these results for years as I witnessed videos of unmistakable police brutality against black men. How can the data tell a story so different than what we see with our eyes? Our analysis tells us what happens on average. It isn't average when a police officer casually kneels on someone's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. He's speaking about George Floyd here. Are there racial differences in the most extreme forms of police violence? The Southern boy in me says yes. The economist in me says we do not know. Now, there's a lot of interesting findings in the data. It's interesting that every spectrum of police force shows a marked uh, difference in its racial component between whites, blacks, and Hispanics, except police shootings. When an officer has you in his sights, finger on the trigger, despite being more likely to beat you, despite being more likely to throw you on the ground, to use a chokehold on you, Something about having you in the sights makes his fing- his trigger finger a little less itchy, and he's a little bit more circumspect in that moment. But there's a, there's a lot of other interesting findings in this data. Dr. Fryer suggests that investigations into police mo- misconduct often result in more crime, with him positing that police uh, perhaps take a more hands-off approach to policing after being accused of brutality, and then you have an attendant rise in violent crime, including rapes and murders. So, is this the outlier that we've been looking for. Again, I'm not an expert on statistics or data analysis, but I do know from my research that Dr. Fryer got a lot of criticism for his paper in the last four or five years. And it all comes down to the data set he is using. No one questioned his motive. No one questioned his, uh, you know, data analysis methods. It was his data set. And you'll recall, I put some emphasis on these words He exhaustively collected data from the police about their shootings, but all this data was self-reported by the officers involved, which is quite a bit of interest. And he's also sifting through sometimes 50 to 100 page uh, police reports on these shootings for, you know, these these fine grain details he's looking for. 
Now, you'll recall the email we just considered where we discovered that the police in America have policies that are not compliant with global standards of policing and human rights, yeah? Well, these same police agencies are deciding what is and isn't a justified shooting, and the officers doing the shooting are the ones writing the reports. These are the same police agencies that ban chokeholds, but then dismiss charges from officers that choke a man to death on tape. Now, if you'll also recall from an episode Walking in the Snow about the George Floyd death, our data on police shootings is is really lousy. We didn't start compiling it until recently, and there's still no national requirement to collect and compile this data in any kind of universal, normalized database. Also, the racial part of the data that we do have is often incomplete. In a study I cited on that Walking the Snow episode, something like 25% of the shootings in America by police are listed as involving an unknown race. So Dr. Fryers and his team had to go through these police reports and certain cities like Houston, L.A., and Denver to try to find police shootings and then compare them to a randomized selection of incidents that didn't lead to shootings to attempt to find some, some truth in the situation about whether you're more likely to be shot or not if you're a white a person or a black person. Uh, and finally, I want to point out that this is a working paper for the National Bureau of Economic Research, which is a fine institution. But the paper itself discloses on the very first page that it's funded by an anonymous source, which is kind of a red flag, because, again, you know, where is the funding coming from? Is there any access to be grind, ground there? And crucially, it was not peer reviewed. It's a working paper. Now, peer review means that fellow experts in your field have checked your data, your methodology and your conclusions, and they can and they concur with them, which is, you know, one of the bedrock principles of the scientific method. So. I don't doubt Dr. Fryer's intentions or credentials, but is this the positive outlier we're looking for? The trickle that's going to lead to a gush and then the dam breaking and the consensus that police brutality is racially motivated? Well, it's a single paper. There have been several papers released since 2016 that have disagreed with it and reaffirmed the original consensus. It wasn't peer-reviewed. You can't follow the money trail because it's anonymously funded. And even Dr. Fryers expresses frustration that his paper has been used by some to dismiss entirely the idea of racial prejudice in the criminal justice system. So, um, you know, I'll link to Dr. Fryer's paper and some of the criticism is received in the show notes. I did note with amusement because I was looking up Dr. Fryer and his credentials in his past. Uh, that he's married to a, a fellow statistician from Harvard, and he got her to go on a date with him by betting that he could find data that suggests there is no link to uh, smoking and cancer. And he won the bet by sending her a paper from a tobacco company, which, you know, <laughs> uh, obviously, I think Dr. Fryer would agree that there is probably a link between lung cancer and smoking. But, uh, I just thought that was kind of a, a funny incident to to include in the discussion. Let's move on to Herschel MC on your podcast and other places. I've heard about how the U.S. has a higher death rate from police shootings, something like a thousand per year. And in other countries, it's something like 20. I was wondering, do you think this has to do with the police force or the fact that we are one of the few countries that have a right to bear arms? Do you think that has more to do with our police or how many guns we have? For example, there's only three countries in the whole world to have a constitutional right to bear arms. That's Mexico, Guatemala, and the United States. Well, thanks for the question, Herschel. I appreciate it. Uh, I think there's several reasons for the disparity. You know, America is a unique place. As you said, we have an individual right to own weapons, 
in our constitution, which makes sweeping gun control or gun reform politically and legally just much more difficult than in places like New Zealand, which was able to swiftly ban many types of weapons used in, in, in mass shootings uh, after just one incident where the U.S. seems doomed to just suffer attack after attack in the name of our individual freedoms. In the United States, uh, kind of like how New Zealand has more sheep than people, we have more guns than people in this country. We possess almost 400 million of them. And full disclosure, I'm a gun owner myself, and I'm licensed to carry a concealed weapon in Indiana and Ohio and all the states that reciprocate on that, which is the vast majority of them. Our police are tasked with several contradictory missions. Serve and protect. Fight a war on drugs. Fight a war on terrorism. We don't talk much about the war on poverty anymore, but you know, if you call the authorities about a mentally ill homeless person, uh, people with guns and body armor are going to be the ones showing up to deal with that person. But yeah, 400 million guns in this country is one of the reasons that cops are armed to the teeth and trained to treat things like even minor traffic stops, like a life or death situation, because you never know. That car you're rolling up to has a few kilos of drugs in it that the driver is going to value over your life and whether they will possess the means in which to quickly and efficiently kill you. Now, I remember when police, even riot police, showed up in blue dress shirts and simple batons to maintain civic order. But this all started to change in 1997 during that. uh, You you guys might remember if you're Gen X or older, uh, this North Hollywood shootout where a few psychos with full body armor like level three, head to the toe, illegally modified automatic weapons, shot at cops and civilians with impunity for the better part of an hour before a SWAT team was finally able to take him down with combined fire. Up until that point in the United States, most patrol officers were equipped with relatively small caliber semi-automatic weapons like a nine millimeter or even a 38 caliber revolver. But almost overnight, departments started expanding their SWAT programs, offering most of their patrol officers uh, access to semi-automatic rifles like the AR-15. The military started offloading body armor and up-armored vehicles to departments for pennies on the dollar. The war on terror made this problem even worse. Uh, And now we also have large and growing disparities in terms of income and wealth inequality, making people desperate and willing to turn to crime to make a living. Now, I have a lot to say about gun culture that we have in this country and things we can do about it, but I don't think there are easy solutions here. If you ban the sale of all guns tomorrow, we still have 400 million of them. You know, that's an expensive gun buyback program if you want to get them off the street. If you legalize drugs tomorrow, you'd still have the problem of income inequality, making people desperate. And we have no plan or leadership to address the additional stresses that large-scale complex automation is going to place on the working poor, with maybe the possible exception of Andrew Yang's failed presidential campaign. And if you disarm the police similar to a country like the UK without doing anything else, I think cops are going to get killed in droves. And who knows what kind of reactionary bullshit that would lead to. Now, what should we do about it? What I like to see is some kind of sweeping change, some kind of you know grand bargain that that decriminalizes most, if not all, drugs, fully legalizes many recreational drugs, moves a sizable chunk of police funding into social services, drug treatment, housing, mental health, education, and correspondingly demilitarizes police. Um, Unfortunately, that's not something we can really do at a federal level because police uh, and a lot of these programs are state and local level, and and the federal government has no jurisdiction. So it's going to be 
you know, state by state, city by city that we win these battles. But there's also a lot of common sense gun control legislation that is supported by a majority of Americans, even gun owning Americans, Americans that support the, the Second Amendment, like mandating responsible gun storage for all gun owners, uh, updating, consolidating the background check process, disarming domestic abusers and other so-called red flag laws that allow authorities to preemptively disarm people who have demonstrated a credible threat to themselves or others. Are there people that are nervous and worried about this? Yes. Are there people that are loud and angry about it? Yes. But again, a lot of these measures I think would be effective and are supported by a majority of Americans. But, you know, the vast majority of gun violence in America is suicide. It's over 60% of all gun deaths in this country per year. Another huge chunk is gang-related. And gang-related means drug deaths. If you help people socially... You remove the black market drug profit motives from the streets. I believe our gun violence would almost certainly drop to the levels other developed countries enjoy, even with 400 million guns in this country. And uh, hopefully that's a subject I can return to soon. I just need to find the right sparring partner for it. Next email, Caleb T. After listening to episode 16 of Three Right Turns, and I heard you call for ways to help continue the Black Lives Matter movement, I immediately thought of the school-to-prison pipeline. As a middle school teacher, I've been dismayed at how easy it can be to predict the future of a student based on their behavior record in school. In short, black students, especially boys, receive the majority share of disciplinary records in public education. This leads to suspensions, which in turn leads to lower academic performance, which leads to behavior issues, rinse and repeat. This naturally leads to negative encounters with school resource officers or SROs. Dropping out becomes inevitable for some, and they begin to feel the desperation and feeling of rejection by an institution that should be helping. It's a disturbing trend that needs to end in our public education with better training for teachers and reformation of antiquated school behavior practices. I've worked hard in my years in the classroom to bring this to light and champion changes within my schools to help black boys, especially because this directly affects them more than any other demographic group. Uh, Caleb shared with us um, a, a... a review article on Wikipedia about the school to prison pipeline and also a paper by the American civil liberties union on uh, the school to prison pipeline, which of course I'm going to share in the show notes. Um, Amen, Caleb. Uh, it's, it's funny and a coincidence just this week I was reading some stunning statistics According to the FBI, since 2013, over 30,000 children under the age of 10 have been arrested by school resource officers. Over 200,000 between the ages of 10 and 12 have been arrested. Almost a million children total have been arrested by SROs in the years between the Columbine shooting and now. The Columbine shooting, of course, was the rationale for hiring all these officers to protect our schools. In 2013, 70,000 children were arrested in the United States by SROs, and you're never going to guess, but a third of them were black students despite making up less than 15% of the enrollment nationwide. And while it's true that there have been a handful of mass shootings that have been stopped or cut short by armed guards, no mass shootings in schools have ever been prevented by an SRO. Think of how much money we spent on these officers in the last 20 years. Think of the costs we face as a society when hundreds of thousands of kids get tossed into the criminal justice system. Think of the disproportionate effects that minorities are facing in these instances. Is it worth it? 
As always, I've got more links in the show notes. I got a couple of, of articles myself on the prison to school pipeline because, uh, like I said, I, it's, it's something that jumped out at me uh, recently as well. Thank you for that, Caleb. Moving on to Asante B. I just want to say thank you for standing up for what's right and using your voice and platform to educate the masses on an issue that pains me to the core of my soul. The way many people ignore and dismiss the value of our lives in all sectors of society hurts so very much. Black people are always educating others on racism, but few listen to us because we just don't matter to them. I told a coworker that for the first time in my life, I'm seeing white people in mass finally talking about the realities of racism, police brutality, disproportionate incarceration rates, etc., and actually taking the time to educate other white people. I feel like it's transformative and I'm here for it. I think about the fact that my family has been in America first as slaves, then as citizens since the 1700s, and I can actually trace my roots back that far, which is very cool. My father fought in the Korean War. His brother was a Tuskegee pilot in World War II. My older brother fought in the Vietnam War, and I have several family members who are police officers today. Yet these men received zero respect when not in uniform and are rarely treated with the equality and dignity they deserve as human beings. And let's not even get started on the daily microaggressions. We've always been told, if you don't like it, just leave. Well, I'm finally listening. The events of the past few weeks have intensified my desire to no longer live in America, and I'm actively making plans to move to Ghana next year or in early 2022. You read a lot about these issues, so perhaps you've heard of the term uh, the global blacksit. The fact that Trump, number one, is still the president and two, is running again and can win does not give me confidence that America will change fast enough. My two daughters and I deserve to feel like we are treated like human beings by our fellow citizens. And sadly, I'm just plain afraid to continue living here. If anyone did or does to my children what that officer did to Mr. Floyd, I just might burn down the country. I'm not going to stop fighting for us, not ever, because black people experience racism everywhere. I just need to be seen and heard. I need to breathe. I love and appreciate you so much. And like we say in my community, stay safe out there in these streets. Uh, That is incredibly kind, Asante. I really appreciate it. Um, You know, I really wish that white people or just people in general could listen to other minorities uh, or people that are facing oppression and talk for themselves and take their problems seriously. But I just don't think that's how we're built as people to work. We are, for better or worse, tribal. You know, if someone comes up to you on the street and has some sob story about the car breaking down and they just need enough money to get to the next town because they're wanting to visit their sick grandmother, your alarm bells start going off, right? You think, oh, man, I'm getting scammed. This is this is a, a load of bullshit. But if it's your best friend, same situation, same story, you probably pull out your wallet right away. Now, if it's a stranger... But your best friend recognizes them and says, oh, yeah, I've heard about how sick your grandma is. Man, that's terrible. I hope she gets better. They pull out their wallet. What are you going to do? It's the same situation as the first instance with this stranger. But now someone that you know and trust that you recognize is vouching for their story. Well, that completely changes the context of the interaction, right? And I think, you know, I'm just talking for myself here, but I, I feel like I've, I've gotten enough feedback to know this is kind of resonant. If you grew up in a 99.9% white area of the country and, you know, for people in cities and coasts, that's essentially every part of the country that isn't less than an hour from a major metropolitan area. And you've been told all your life, 
in school, by people you trust, by the media, by TV shows, that racism essentially has been solved a generation before you were even born. And you hear that America is still racist and we need to spend more money to help to reform the police. What? It just sounds like such a scam. Oh, I just need a few bucks to get to the next town to visit my grandma. Yeah, yeah, right. You're going to blow it on booze and alcohol. But a lot of white people are waking up to the idea that, oh, shit, there's actually a fuck ton of broken down vehicles and sick grandmas out there. And in this new context, I think they're feeling pretty shitty about their previous attitudes towards these people. Now, I hope, I hope this leads to long lasting positive change, but it's going to be really hard work. This isn't something that can be solved overnight. Uh, And the white people that are getting on the same page still have so many more pages to read. None of this shit that we're talking about on our podcast in terms of economics and racial and sexual, sexual equality. None of these things are going to go away overnight. And if it involves more feelings of guilt and shame coming out of this awakening, than a firm resolve to see justice and equity done, I mean, that stuff can turn dark and ugly real quick. So I'm hopeful, but there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. Now, right now, it doesn't feel like Trump will win a reelection. But but who the fuck knows? You know, everybody register to vote. Check your status. Vote411.org. Tell your friends and family. Check up on them. Don't get complacent. But even if Trump is defeated... How confident are we in the political processes after the last four years that he'll actually be forced to leave? And even if he does and we get, you know, at least four years of Biden, what's that going to look like? I mean, this country right now is in tatters and about every place outside of Wall Street. How much longer can this keep trucking on? How much money are we going to have to start solving problems once we actually get around to solving them? How long until the centrists start getting frustrated with what little progress uh, a Democratic administration can make on this mess? Are we going to be able to get the Senate? We still don't have the courts. And I expect legal challenge after legal challenge to any bills with teeth that actually try to address some of these systemic issues in our country. And I think there's going to be a lot of anger and frustration at like the apparent lack of progress. So I don't blame anybody for wanting to get out, especially a black person with with their family. You know, staying here is risky and you're betting with your family's lives. And Ghana is beautiful. They have a lot of resources. They have a powerhouse economy. They're investing in education, technology. They're leading Africa in space exploration. The weather's amazing. The geography's amazing. English is the official language. It's it's not perfect. No place on earth is or probably ever will be. But your daughters aren't going to have to worry about the police pulling them over um, and, and beating them because of their race or being degraded by racists on the street. I just actually, um, a couple months ago, I was reading an article from the BBC, uh, about a black doctor's experience. You talked about this black sit, this black doctor moved from America to Ghana. And the one quote from the article kind of really jumped out at me. He said, wow, this is what it must feel like to be a white person in America, just to be able to live without worrying that something is going to happen to you. You know, who wouldn't want that for their children? You know, Asante, it's a damn shame that we couldn't give it to your daughters here in America. Not here, not today, but hopefully one day. And I really appreciate your email and I wish you good luck on any future moves that you decide to make. 
Evan's up next. He says, I just finished your Darmok episode and I very much enjoyed it. Based on everything I've heard from you in this podcast and over a bald move, I believe our political outlooks are fairly similar. I'm also in the Air Force, which skews conservative. So like you, I find myself having conversations with folks with opposing viewpoints frequently. I had an interesting experience when I went to college. I'm white. My parents are both doctors, so I was incredibly privileged growing up. I went to the American University in Washington, D.C. and did Reserve Officers Training Corps. In D.C., the schools share ROTC detachments. So if you went to Catholic University and you wanted to do Navy ROTC, you did your training at George Washington. Georgetown University had an Army ROTC detachment. If you wanted to be an Air Force officer, you did your training at Howard University, which is an HBCU, a historically black college and university. Each detachment usually had a majority of students from a host university, which meant that the majority of Air Force cadets were black. It's a very interesting thing going from always being the majority to always being in the minority. Just seeing the funding and endowment between my primarily white American university and Howard was enough to tell you that something was up. But getting to know a group of African-Americans from all over the country over the course of four years certainly changed my outlook on race in this country. This is a really long-winded way to get to my question. What do you think about referring to white privilege as a black handicap? I agree with everything you said in the podcast that for some reason, humans just naturally get defensive and want to shut down any suggestions that they don't work hard or have it easier. When discussing this topic with colleagues and friends, if I explain it as more of a handicap black Americans have and not a benefit white Americans get, I think generally people are more open to that idea. White privilege is probably true entrenched a phrase to replace it with another, but I think the phrase touches too many nerves to ever be broadly accepted by a majority of Americans. White privilege might be more accurately describing the phenomenon, but politics, unfortunately, isn't necessarily about being right. It's about being heard and getting the most support. Hey, man, first of all, thanks for sharing your story. Uh, I think it's fascinating stuff, and I love hearing about all the different paths that people can take to learn about the truth of kind of like what's going on in our country in terms of like any really social issue. And and I hear what you're saying. Um, I said last episode, right, that sometimes I wish we had separate terms for racial prejudice and hatred, uh, separate and apart from like systemic and institutional racial bias, which works regardless of the individual participants actually having racial prejudice and hatred in their heart, right? So, you know, you have super racism and racism, like I talked about. Or in the judicial system, you have terms like uh, assault, versus aggravated assault, murder versus manslaughter, the difference being uh, like intent. Maybe we should have racism and aggravated racism or super racism. But I've also seen a lot of times where academics try to rebrand because their message isn't getting out to the public and it backfires uh, because I think conservatives are really good about uh, picking up on that. For example, global warming, climate change. We shifted to the latter to be less confusing to people and to explain that while the globe is indeed in terms of average getting warmer, that might actually mean colder winters for some people. It might mean shifts in rain patterns. It it doesn't mean necessarily that literally every place on the planet is warming or certainly not at the same rate. So we go for climate change rather than global warming. Did it work? No. In fact, that's a really common conservative attack on climate change. They used to kind of work on me back in the uh, Inconvenient Truth, uh, Al Gore Gore days. 
that, uh, oh, yeah, in the 70s, scientists warned that we were going into an ice age, and then they said the planet's melting, and now it's about climate change. Oh, can you imagine the weather changing? Oh, my God, these liberals must think we're so stupid. So I'm open to the suggestion, but I kind of think it's a hill we have to fight on. Uh, because the other thing is like, you know, um, making it more palatable to white people might make it less palatable to black people. Um, you know, black handicap, um, you know, bl- black penalty, black uh, disadvantage. Um, there's already like a lot of when I hear conservative black people talk that drives them fucking crazy. The fact that they feel like people treat them and consign them to some kind of permanent victim class. Um, and they don't see that they reject that, you know, that they are, they can be successful in this, in this world. They can rise above all that. Um, and, uh, so you have to, you have to be conscious of, of, of that too. But at the end of the day, it's the, the, the problem is it's not just terminology that we're fighting, right? If all we had to overcome was a person's personal pride. And if all we could do, if all we had to do is just apologize for racism and promise never, ever, ever to do it again, you know, we might be able to reframe the terminology in a more palatable way and have it be effective. But but most of us, when we talk about institutional racism, it's along the lines of that we have to acknowledge that not only do we have to stop doing it, but we have to work on restoring people that were harmed by it. You know, Malcolm X is pretty famous for saying, if you stick a knife in my back nine inches and you pull it out six inches, no progress in my condition has been made. In fact, if you pull the knife out all the way, it's not progress. Progress is healing the wound that the blow made. So what is healing in terms of a wealth gap between black people and white people look like? The average white family has a net worth of $170,000. The average black family has a net worth of $17,000. It's a 10 times disparity. Now, if you believe that is due to some form of racism, super aggravated, manslaughter, whatever, then even if we stop the racism, is the blow going to heal itself? And how long would it take to do so? How many generations would be at a disadvantage? Healing is going to require some sort of restitution, maybe some form of reparations. And maybe that looks like investing in the communities that have been left behind. Uh, Maybe it's not a direct cash transfer. But either way, you're talking about spending some real money. And when you start doing that, you're going to have a bunch of poor white people lining up and saying, $171,000 my ass, what are you going to do for me and my community? Because they've got a point. So a lot of these small rural towns in the South, a lot of small Midwestern towns, a lot of manufacturing towns that are really t- terrible places to live, have terrible education system, terrible housing problem, terrible employment aspects. Now you're talking about more money. Then you start getting into terms like wealth redistribution, which is scary. And now you've got moderates and centrists pissed off and angry, thinking that you're coming for them and their pocketbooks. And I don't think that any kind of relabeling is going to alleviate the problem. We've just got to argue. We've got to explain. We've got to persuade. Because we eventually have to take care of all these systemic problems in our society. We have to guarantee some sort of basic dignity of living. And if we manage to do that, we have the whole rest of the world to worry about. Because the reality is, this is kind of like a bedrock principle in my mind, I'm not going to be able to enjoy peace and justice unless I know everyone's enjoying it, right? I mean, what kind of sociopath can enjoy a lavish meal 
knowing that their neighbor next door is starving? How long can we continue to divide up the world between those of us that deserve a decent standard of living and those that have to be content starving, dying of preventable diseases, working in sweatshops for the benefit of a very few? We, we started this podcast with the question, are we steering towards a Star Trek utopia or a Mad Max hell world? I don't know why you'd spend trillions of dollars hoping you can be a Morton Joe when we could spend the same amount of money to be on the bridge of the Enterprise. But, you know, that's just me. And don't get me wrong. If there was polling and research that suggested that there was a better way to like red pill people with privilege so they're open to addressing it and, and unlocking their inner Picards, unlocking their inner hero and join arm in arm with their uh, black brothers and sisters and lift, work on lifting everyone up. I'd be all for it. I just kind of skeptical that that's an easy solution to work. But if you find it rhetorically powerful in one on one conversations with your friends, then and it's working, then I got I got no problem with it. Uh, and I, I encourage people to, to, to build whatever bridge is required to get people to engage with their empathy and compassion and, and, and get involved. Finally, we have Gray Linsman. I find your discussion with Bastia fascinating and enlightening, but I think it missed on a couple of points. I reject the idea that we must choose between a capitalist or socialist society. I, I'm kind of with you there, Linsman. We are a blend, and most of our successes can be attributed to that fact. Some things are simply better managed through capitalist or socialist practices. Capitalism works well for many things, but really badly for others. For-profit healthcare is a perfect example where capitalism is failing miserably. Total, st- Still 100% agreement. Similarly, a capitalist military, i.e., uh, hiring mercenaries when needed is widely regarded as a bad idea, even though it would probably be more cost effective. I'd also like to offer up a case against billionaires. Consider an analogy to the human body. When an area experiences out of control growth, we call it a cancer. We know that if that growth is not checked, it will eventually sap the body's ability to keep its other systems in balance. The life's blood of our economy is now pooling to too few in organs to mix my metaphors a bit. Mathematically, billionaires present out-of-control growth. Even a ridiculously low 5% return on their investments yield something like $50 million per year per billion, far more money than any reasonable person can find a sensible, non-wasteful way to benefit from. And that's just the interest. Any unused portion of that causes the principle to continue to spiral out of control, often for generations. And honestly, as an aside here, it's my understanding that's why the stock market is humming, even though our economy is in shambles, because rich people have so much fucking money, they have nothing to invest it in but the stock market, and it keeps going up, and the feds keep loaning money at almost 0% interest, and it's a self-perpetuating cycle. Uh, massive wealth transfer. Speaking of wealth distribution, scary term, it's just happening, it's just now happening in reverse, going from the lower to middle class up into uh, the top 1%, the top fractional 1%. Even so, going back to uh, 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 Gray Linsman here, uh, even so, if you say, I say if you earn it, you should be able to keep it. Capping wealth isn't a fair solution to the problem. What we should really cap is inheritance. I'm okay with letting the OCD rich run up their score so long as, or as long as they want, so long as I know that most of whatever is left when they are done with it will go to the public good. Such a system would reduce the number of billionaires that might even significantly reduce other taxation if you set up right. Society should ultimately benefit from its role in that person's success because, let's face it, no single capitalist can legitimately build anything like $1 billion of wealth without a society with the infrastructure to enable them. And best of all, the motive to succeed survives. There's no moral or ethical 
justification for inheritance anyway. It's a royalist tradition, jealously protected through the age by its beneficiaries. They like to scare us by talking about a death tax, but I like to call this idea posthumous philanthropy or heaven for your money. Uh, if you can't bring yourself to limit inheritance, then at least tax the hell out of it at the highest practical tax rate. Uh, tax rate. Frank Herbert got it right in Dune. When you die, your water should go back to the tribe. Uh, you know, Denis Villeneuve, uh, if you're not familiar with the Dune reference, is making what seems to be a bang-up adaptation of this into a movie. Maybe we'll get it later this year if the COVID shit cal- calms down. Um, but he's referring to there's a desert tribe uh, on this desert planet of Iraq. is called the Freeman. And they, uh, you own your own water, um, the, and including the body, the water that, uh, you collect inside your body. But when you, tr- when you die, the, pr- the tribe has a process to extract, dehydrate that water from your body. And it's returned to the tribe's collective, um, the holdings. Uh, so that's the, the reference he's getting there. Here's my response to your suggestions. Um, let's talk in terms of military power. You know, I use this example of Bastiat. I want to return to it because I still haven't gotten a really satisfying answer to it. Let's say that we, you know, like our economic wealth, we're not going to put any caps on it. We're going to allow people to raise armies. We're going to allow them to equip it with whatever technology that they want. But when they die, their armies are forced to be disbanded. They can't hand them over to their children. So you can't have any kind of like hereditary warlord emperor situation. You know, what's the problem here? To me, the obvious one is there's just an insane temptation to use your overwhelming military power to advance your personal objectives in competition with the needs and wants of society while you're still alive and capable of it. I mean, why not, if you have this large, powerful army, take over the country and become a dictator and change the law so that you can pass your military power to your children and you just do an in run around the whole game? And I think you probably see the point I'm making with the economic power. Um, it's one of the frustrating parts that I ha- uh, of my conversation with Bastiat, the fact that he said, you know, hey, campaign contributions, look, man, you know, they're limited. You can't just give whatever money you want. There's, there's laws for that. But I, I think that's ridiculous because it's like saying, hey, the speed limit is 55 miles per hour. You can't just drive as fast as you want on the highway, except... That's actually a bad comparison because there is, in fact, a limit to how fast you can drive on a highway. The laws of physics, you know, not only is it illegal, but most production cars can't go over 150 miles an hour. So you can only do about three times the legal limit. Even if you purpose built a rocket car that is the fastest thing that's ever existence, you're still going to top out at like a thousand miles per hour, 20 times the legal limit. But there's literally no legal limit or physical limits for the amount of wealth that you can amass in a capitalist society. You can self-finance your own campaign, outspend your opponents, and stand a good chance of winning. Uh, Bloomberg didn't get it done in the Democratic primary, but do we have to let a successful, charismatic billionaire, Bond-type villain attain high office and start fucking up society before we start to worry about it or start thinking about, gee whiz, how can we keep this from happening? And you mentioned this motive to succeed, but I I don't understand it. Maybe I'm not being clear, but how is making $100 million not successful, but $150 billion is successful? I mean, I get it. It's literally a bigger number, right? 
But there's so many other endeavors that there is a maximum perfect score you can get. Diving, gymnastics, bowling, deer hunting. Like, you take a doe, uh, you take another one if, for, if you're using a muzzleloader, you take another one for a bow, for bow season, and you can take one buck, and then you're done. You're done. You can't shoot as many deer as you want. Uh, and yet, these people are still considered very successful hunters. So... I'm highly skeptical that the economy has to dangle this idea that you can become wealthier than a pharaoh for people to be productive. You know, politicians serve the public without the carrot of unlimited political power being a possibility. They can't be dictators for life, at least not in a, in a liberal democracy. Soldiers sign up for the military without a hope of unlimited military power. You know, we know generals uh, amassing armies like in, in the, the end stage Roman Republic and taking things over. So what is this obsession with wealth and the accumulation of property? Why is it the one thing that you aren't allowed to question, limit, or touch? With nothing else, it seems like this obscene concentration of wealth and economic power um, when other people are starving is a massive barrier to us working together and feeling like we're working on the same team as a society, right? So I don't know. I still haven't got a satisfying answer to that question. If you think you have one, please send it in to three right turns at swizzbold.com. Unfortunately, that's all the time I have this week. And I only made it through about half my mailbag. I could probably do a, a whole episode just on the feedback I got from the turf wars podcast. I did a few weeks ago. Maybe we can do just that in the upcoming weeks. Maybe I can have Nat back. Uh, on or another gender critical person hell probably should talk to some trans people as well right you know uh hear from the 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 representatives of the people actually being affected on the other side of this issue uh but honestly there's never a shortage of topics to talk about when it comes to politics and society and making both of those more just and equitable and fair please Keep the feedback coming to three right turns at swizzbold.com. You can follow us on all the social medias at swizzbold. Please consider supporting us if you like the work that we do and you find it beneficial and you appreciate it at patreon.com slash swizzbold. Patronage confers special bonuses like subreddit flair for uh, our r slash swizzbold subreddit. Access to our special monthly patron only live streams that we archive on our patron site. In fact, by the time this episode is released, we'll have just had our July stream the night before. And at this time, I'd like to specifically and specially thank our Fred Level patrons by name. Thanks goes to Angela Morano, Laura Luthi, Arvin Rao, Kira Grusho, Mark Hahn, George P. Burdell, Brian Rasmussen, Jordan Hoyt, James Taylor, Jared Harrelman, and Greg Rasp. We couldn't do it without your support. Thanks for listening, everybody. Check out One Weird Trick next week as Cecily and I will be doing our best to dish out ideas and tips for living your best lives. I'll be back the following week on Wednesday because, again, I'm going into my bi-weekly format um, for some more progressive political thought from a conservative point of view. And until then, stay safe, wear your masks, check your voter registration at vote411.org, and look after your neighbors wherever and whenever you can. Have a great week, everybody. Have a great week, everybody.